Hello, my name's Kia. For those of you just joining us in this episode, a quick introduction to myself. I'm an F1 doctor and a UCL grad, and this podcast is here to help you prepare for life as an F1. Welcome to part two of our FAQ discussion with Ayushi and Ken, two F1 doctors in London hospitals. If you want to review part one of our discussion, all of the questions we answered are in the episode description with timestamps so that you can skip to any relevant questions. And we'll be doing the same for this episode. Uh, This one's quite a good question. So can F1s assist in surgery and is there the opportunity for those with surgical interests to do so? Uh, Ken, I think you did a surgical rotation, didn't you? Yeah. Um, so there is plenty of opportunity. If you're keen, you'll get lots of um, opportunity to assist in theatre. Um, at UCLH, we were quite lucky because we actually were rotated into theatre days. So we had no responsibility over the ward patients. We were literally just rotated into assist in theatres. Um, and then it essentially depends on who else is in the theatre with you. Um, if you're with an SHO as well and they're quite keen, Unfortunately, they might end up being the one to scrub up and assist. But if you're keen, uh, you could just go and ask a registrar and they might be happy to pull you out of a ward day and let you assist in theatre. Definitely. Um, so at my hospital, those who had a surgical interest just tried to make it known quite early on. Um, and whenever there was a, a time where the wards were quiet, the registrars in theatres could just call that person and be like, hey, do you want to come and assist or do you want to watch or scrub in? Um, and that happened quite often. So if you just let them know, that's the important thing. Let your supervisors and let the team know that you do want to do surgery or you have an interest in it. But even if you don't have an interest, the, the opportunity definitely presents. And some people don't like theatres. So they, they might ask someone else with an interest to go there. But um, yeah, there's definitely opportunities there. Another question about night shifts. Uh, we can cover this one quite quickly, but is there a hospital accommodation or a room to sleep in? So it depends on the hospital. Sometimes there might be accommodation available, but it's quite a rarity, I would say. Um, you're on your night shift, so they're not expecting you to sleep, although it is acceptable to rest. They're not expecting you to have a full-on um, you know, deep sleep in a, in a room. So often there are sofas or beds scattered around the hospital that you can nap on. Um, in, in our hospital, we're trying to get sleep pods in and most hospitals are doing the same. Most hospitals have recently received money from the BMA for the fatiguing facilities charter, and they're putting that towards um, sleep facilities and other facilities that can help junior doctors, either on night shift or on calls. But of course, every hospital also has the doctor's mess, so you can go there to have a nap. Uh, but yeah, this, this will be entirely dependent on your hospital as to whether there's accommodation or not. On another note, every hospital should provide accommodation if you feel like you're too tired to drive home after the shift. So there's always an emergency um, accommodation room available so that you're not driving home tired. And they're really trying to cut down on on you having to drive home tired because of a few recent um, tragedies. So the next question is about booking annual leave and how this works and any recommendations about how best to distribute your annual leave from our experience. Um, So, yeah. any of you guys? Um, so annual leave, uh, you book it through your rotor coordinator. Um, we've mentioned the rotor coordinator a few times, but they're essentially, they can be a medical person. So it could be one of your seniors, so a reg or an SHO or one of the consultants, or it could be a non-medical admin mm-hmm. person. 
but essentially they just allocate the rotor um, and they'll make themselves known before you start your work. So don't worry about that. Um, and the key point about annual leave is to just get them booked as early as possible. Um, if you don't book it early and you leave it till the end, there's quite a good chance that there, there won't be minimum staffing on the wards and they'll unfortunately have to reject your application for the annual leave. Um, so if you know you have a holiday coming up or a wedding or something, just get your annual leaves in as early as possible. Yeah, and it's not, you can't be too keen with it. Like if you know there's a wedding on your next job, just find out who the, the rotor coordinator is from the F1 who's currently on that job um, and get in touch with them. I'm sure they'll appreciate being contacted early anyway. Yeah, and always remember you can reverse annual leave as long as you give them enough notice as well. So it's always best to book in early as a precaution. And then if you later realise you don't need that leave, you can just cancel it. Um, but that's, again, subject to the road coordinator. So as long as you give them enough notice, there shouldn't be an issue with cancelling leave. Um, and with respect to how best to distribute annual leave, I think the best well, the best way I've seen it done and the, the, what I do is I go through my rotor and just look at if I've got any zero days, which are essentially days off in the middle of the week. Um, so if I've got a zero day on the Wednesday, then it's quite a nice idea to take the Thursday and the Friday off um, because then that will give me a whole five-day uh, weekend, essentially, with Saturday and Sunday off. So yeah, just look at your rotor and see if there are any gaps and if you can just take a few days off in those gaps to give you a whole week clear. And that's what most people do. And it, it often helps if you've got night shifts because after the night shifts, they give you some days off. Um, and some people just bang on a few annual leave days to give them a whole week. Yeah, I think the other thing I didn't fully appreciate before starting F1 was that your rotor will comprise of normal working days, which will be sort of nine to five variants. And then you might occasionally have on calls. So that could be a twilight shift that you do. So you stay nine till 10 or nine till nine and weekends and nights and all of those other sort of antisocial shifts. Annual leave, the rules tend to be that you can apply for it on normal working days. So the days where you only have nine to five. And that's where the swaps that we talked about earlier come in. So you could have a whole week mm. where you maybe have an on-call on a Tuesday evening. You've applied for annual leave, but Tuesday evening shift, you also need to swap with somebody else um, in order to actually get the week off. Okay, I think this is a good question as well. So what should you do in an actual acute scenario as opposed to ABCDs in OSCEs? Mm. So I think a big difference from doing it in OSCEs to real life was that Shouting for help very early on in your OSCE doesn't work so well in real life. Like you can obviously <laughs> get help from yeah. a nurse in the bay or the nursing staff on the ward that have called you to see a patient. But if you call the medreg when all you've done is check for danger and a response, then you're not going to actually have very much to SBAR over at that point. So maybe like proceed a little yeah. bit further and finish the ABCDE, maybe order your basic investigations, do the bloods. A VBG is also quite helpful to have the ECG. So you've got the immediate investigation results. So when you're talking to the reg, they can actually give you better advice um, if you have more information for them. Yeah. And I think you'll realize that the way we practice ABCDs and OSCEs are actually hugely valuable. So I know when you're doing them in OSCEs, you think it feels like a really fake scenario. But in real life, when you are in that acute scenario, you can get quite flustered and panicked. So having that structure to fall back on is super useful. Um, and that is actually how we approach acute scenarios. We still definitely do the doctor ABC as thoroughly as you can, um, but there's a bit more flexibility as to some of the orders you do things in. 
um, and some of the investigations you order. Would you guys agree? Mm-hmm. Yep. I would also say um, it's also quite important to learn how you actually use a, the equipment on the ward. Mm-hmm. Um, so even simple things like how to actually turn on the oxygen and put on a face mask mm-hmm. or how to use the particular um, OBS machine that your ward has. Um, these simple things can actually be quite difficult if you don't know exactly how to do them. Yeah. And that can delay your assessment. When you're flustered. Um, yeah. And remember that if, if you ever don't know what to do, you should try and get a nurse in with your acute scenario anyway, so they can do that whilst you're assessing. But definitely good to get accustomed to the equipment on your ward. Within hours as well, so like nine to five, if there is an acute scenario, you'll probably have another F1 with you or an SHO. And what is quite useful when you first start, I mean, hopefully your SHOs will be doing this anyway, is that they will let you lead the assessment, but they'll be there watching you and supporting you so that when you're there out of hours doing the same thing, you've had a bit of practice with somebody there at your side and you can feel a bit more independent, a bit more confident being alone. Mm. And if that's not happening, if your SHO is leading more often than you, you could also have that conversation where you're like, oh, that was really useful to watch. Do you mind next time if I lead it and you watch me do it? And that applies to any mm. skill as well, I would say, just to help with your confidence. Definitely. Uh, the next question is, do you continue to revise topics as you go? And how do you continue your personal learning alongside work? <laughs> so I think in terms of, um, so I started on psychiatry and I tried to learn psychiatry whilst doing psychiatry. And then when I came onto surgery, I felt like I'd forgotten all of my surgical knowledge. So then I started going back through my surgical flashcards, not in an intense way at all. It wasn't like revision. It was just lightly whenever you had spare time. Uh, sometimes just even on the wards or you can take the handbook that's sometimes lying around on the ward and and read that topic in your free time but I don't think there's ever any pressure to continue um, revising topics I guess that's the wrong word but you'll definitely have personal learning throughout the rotation because there there should be teaching and some seminars during those uh, specialities or during the rotations you're on Um, and and you should be learning throughout I don't think you need to put any particular pressure on it. Um, obviously, if you've got any portfolio goals for any uh, further training that you want to go into, then that's something to start thinking about. And you can always do research and stuff um, alongside working. And you just have to make it known within your team that you want to do audits and you want to do certain things. But I think it just comes with the job. You, you have to attend a certain number of core teaching hours. And so you don't need to necessarily stress about how you revise as you go along. It just comes with it. Yeah. So F1 teaching program will exist in the hospitals that you go to. Um, and there's also lots of e-learning that they make you do, of course, um, to health and safety things, prescribing yeah. e-learning, those things that come within that. And the job that you're on will have departmental teaching as well. So I started on gastro and there was a weekly meeting where we got lunch, obviously. Um, and they talked through lots of different things, but I don't really revise outside of work it was more just if you're at work and for example when I was on gastro I was seeing IBD paracetamol overdose alcohol excess like those were the common things coming in and therefore I became quite acquainted with those conditions and managing them and it was useful for me to read or google things on the go but I wasn't having to do that outside of work as long as you're proactive when you're at work you've got your phone which has got endless resources on it so being proactive on the job means that you'll fill in the gaps as you go along. Yeah. Agreed. Mm. I, I would say Agreed. 90% of what I learned as an F1 is not medical knowledge, but just practical things. Yeah. 
like how the hospital works and who I should be emailing to order an endoscopy. And yeah. so it, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bother. I, I agree with Ayushi in that if you see lots of common things, it's good to read up on that. So, you know, the management inside out, but your the, the knowledge that you need to, to do your job, um, your daily job will kind of just diffuse through um, and you'll pick it up as you go. Yeah. And for those on calls where you're a little bit more alone, there's loads of apps that you can use. So all the knowledge will be at the tip of your fingers if you've ever forgotten anything, which is quite likely. And we'll go through the top five must-have apps for F1s at the end of this episode. Uh, the next question is, what is the most commonly made error by F1s when they start? Um, I think that's quite a difficult one to answer and it's probably subject to individuals. But for me personally, when I, when I started my first rotation within the hospital I think it was learning to chase jobs so I think in the first week I would request scans for example CT scans I was on surgery um, and just expect that it would be done at some point and the slot would be booked <clears throat> but it was only until I did my on-call shift that I, that I learned if I wanted to get things done fast and efficiently then I should request a scan then I should call CT and see if they've got any slots available and if they can get that patient into the slot at a certain time and you, you have to learn to essentially argue your case as to why that um, why that scan is indicated uh, in an emergency scenario and why it's urgent but yeah I think that was my main m- mistake I guess if you would want, want to call it that but in my first week I wasn't really chasing jobs um, and I hate that word chase, but it is something you do have to do in order to make sure jobs are done in the hospital, just because there are so many teams involved. Yeah, I think that's a really reasonable thing to say. Um, coming back to prioritising for me, I think. So if you need to do bloods on someone and you didn't order them for the phleb to do, you need to get that done before lunch, really, because if you don't, then you're going to have to hand that over to the on-call doctor to chase the blood results from something you've done at 3pm. Similarly, there's other things that you shouldn't really hand over I think people were making that mistake quite frequently early on which leaves the person who is taking the handovers swamped if you're all handing over one cannula then that's not very fair yeah another common error is probably prescriptions that could have gone wrong um I if you want to talk about that so we've talked a bit about prescribing and how e-prescribing can save you from errors I don't fully agree with that because the system doesn't often tell you if you're doing a duplicate prescription it doesn't stop you from prescribing ridiculous doses it gives you suggested doses but I think one of my first prescriptions I put milligrams instead of micrograms and luckily the pharmacist did not um, verify the prescription so the drug wasn't dispensed but that could have been quite a severe mistake to make yeah but again, like it's just good to remember that if if those mistakes do happen, then often, not to encourage you to make those mistakes, but often it is caught <laughs> by a pharmacist or by someone else in the team. Yeah, like the it, nurse giving the drug might be like, "This is a really ridiculous dose of this medication. Yeah. I'm not going to give it." So don't um, panic the night before your first job trying to revise doses. Um, obviously, try and look at the BNF and make sure you're doing it BNF. right. Yeah. yeah. Great. Thank you, Ayushu and Ken, for your time. Um, I hope that's been useful for you guys. If you have any other questions, then please submit them to the email or the link in the description below. To finish up, I just want to leave you with our top five must-have apps as an F1, and these will definitely help to make your life easier, especially with those on-call shifts. Um, And some of them, hopefully, you'd already have as med students and others you 
might not have heard of. Um, the first one is obviously the BNF. This will be your best friend throughout your shifts just because you need to check your doses. It's safe to check your doses and you're encouraged to do so. So never be afraid to get your BNF out and check the doses. Don't feel embarrassed to do so. The next one is microguide. As we know, all antibiotics are trust-specific and microguide has tailored guidelines for each trust and that will really help with deciding which antibiotics to use for which patients. Another one that I found super useful uh, as an F1 was induction and it wasn't one that I'd heard of as a med student. But this is essentially an application that has a list of all the bleeps in your hospital. So you can search, for example, radiographer or CT scanning and it will tell you the bleep or the extension number that you can call to contact those teams so that's really useful and without it I wouldn't know where to look for all of these bleeps. The next one has been with me for a long time uh, and I used it a lot during med school for revision and that was BMJ best practice um, and this is essentially a encyclopedia of all medical conditions, case histories but importantly it lays out in a format that you can use on a shift so it's got a section for investigations, the first investigations or you should use and the diagnostic investigations, gold standard, and then it also has nice treatment algorithms, so first line, second line, um, and other additional treatments that you can look into. But I find it really useful, and not only not only for revision, but when you're on shift and you want to just clarify that your management plan is correct and you haven't forget, forgotten anything, you can go on to search the condition, check that treatment algorithm, and see that you have covered all the bases and covered all the investigations. And the fifth one that I would really recommend is Pocket Doctor. And this is really useful for on-call shifts where if you're getting bleeps to do things like electrolyte replacements, if someone's magnesium is low, um, they're often prescriptions that you may not have learned in med school, especially in the IV forms. And it gives you example prescriptions with doses and routes, um, as well as things like your palliative care, end-of-life cocktail. It's got all of that in a very easy-to-access format in the application. And all of these are free, so I highly recommend getting them. Um, but yeah, there, there are plenty of apps there to help you and those are just the top five ones that we would recommend and I use them on a weekly, if not daily basis.